Greetings and welcome to White Throne Baptist Church Online. I thank you for joining us today. What you're looking at here on this slide is a is an artist's impression of the tabernacle based upon the scriptures from Exodus chapter 25. So we're going to take a look at this tabernacle today and we're going to try to find the relevance of the tabernacle and its teachings concerning Jesus Christ. We're told in the book of Luke that Jesus, after his resurrection, walked with two disciples on a road to Emmaus, and he had uh, had a conversation with them about what had happened in Jerusalem. Of course, they were walking away thinking that Jesus, who they thought was the Messiah, uh, had been crucified, and so discouraged their walking away. But then he showed them in all the scriptures, the things concerning him. Now that walk, I believe, was the greatest Bible study ever in history because Jesus pointed to all the things in the scriptures that were about him. And as we take that cue to take a look at the scriptures and explore them and see really what he meant by that, it is indeed true that indeed all the scriptures speak of him. That's not to say we'll find Jesus in every single word or sentence, but we find him in the structures. We find him in the narratives. We find him in the uh, prophecies and in the things of the Old Testament as we see them lived out in the real lives of the real people of Israel. So we come to Exodus chapter 25, which is in that part of the Bible that people normally quit their read-through of the Bible that year because they they get through Genesis, which is quite exciting, bunch of drama. They get to Exodus, and there's all those, you know, that interaction with Pharaoh and Moses and all those miraculous plagues that come upon Egypt and this wonderful Exodus of the people being brought out of the bondage and slavery. But then God starts talking about the rules that he was going to make for his people Israel. And he starts to make a covenant with them that we spoke about last time. And we tend to get lost in the details. It seems very tedious. It seems very boring. And quite frankly, a lot of readers fizzle out at that point. A wise reader, even if he finds himself fizzling out, will at least skip forward to the book of Joshua where things start to get really exciting again. But here's what we want to take a look at here in Exodus 25. There is a connection between the tabernacle and the Christmas story. Because uh, we come to a time of year, and I don't know when you're watching this video. It could be months or years from now. But we're currently in the Christmas season. And when it comes to Christmas, we don't think much about the Old Testament. We don't think much about the tabernacle because, after all, it's about the advent of Jesus Christ. But we have to remember that everything in the Old Testament anticipated the advent of Jesus Christ. He was never a plan B. He was always God's one and only plan A solution to the sin of mankind. And so we take a look at this and it's uh, up to us to explore and see and make connections. And we often find those connections in the words. I want to take you to the word right now. And we are going to go to John chapter 1. And in John chapter 1, as John begins his prologue, John didn't start his gospel like the others. John was interested in kind of a topical study of the person of Jesus Christ. And his was very focused upon the theology of the day because he wrote his last. He wrote it very late in the first century. And in that century, we were already seeing all kinds of heresies about Jesus 
come to the forefront. So John wrote specifically to address some of those heresies. And one of those heresies was that he was not fully God. And a heresy that seemed to go hand in hand with it was the ditch on the other side of the road that said he wasn't really a man. And so what was John to do? Well, John introduces him as the word that was the from the beginning. And he Uh, teaches that indeed everything was made through Jesus Christ, that there wasn't anything made that was not made through him. But look what he says in chapter 1, verse 14. He says, the word that is Jesus Christ became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Well, this is a fascinating way for him to open this up and to speak about this. And he says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And this word dwelt is a very interesting word choice here because this is a word that could be translated as pitched his tent. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, the tabernacle, that word simply means a tent. It was called a tent, and this word is used to translate what the tabernacle was. And so this is essentially saying that when Jesus came, he came and tabernacled among us. So now we have to take a look at the tabernacle, and we have to look at the tabernacle from the point of view of what does this say about Jesus coming and actually being with us? Because the verse we saw there in John is one that is often reviewed this time of year as we celebrate Christmas. And it is connected by the word to the tabernacle. Well, let's take a look in Exodus chapter 25. They have just gotten done receiving the preliminary laws, the moral law in Exodus 20 and some applications of those laws. And then they had a covenant ceremony with God. And the people essentially said, we're going to do all that God tells us to do. And God renews his covenant and reiterates the promises that he is giving them. And in Exodus chapter 25, then he begins a detailed description of the contents of this tabernacle that they're to build and the actual description and details of the uh the structure of it. And he tells them to be very careful to make it after the pattern that he shows. Well, let's look at how he begins this in Exodus chapter 25. Here's what it says. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they may take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece, and let them make me a sanctuary." that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all the furniture, so you shall make it. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father God, these words are important because you've included them with your scriptures. Show us the relevance of these things today. 
let us really consider what it means that you would dwell with your people. And then let us think about how this connects to Jesus Christ who came and dwelt among us. And then, even upon leaving, made great promises to never leave us nor forsake us. Write these great truths on our heart that we may glorify you more, that we may serve you better. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so there we have, uh, they are to take willing contributions from all the people of all the things that they're going to need to build this. Well, if you'll remember, when they left Egypt, they left with a great deal of wealth because the Egyptians were so happy to see them go. They went and asked the the Israelites, asked the Egyptians for stuff, and and the Egyptians gave them stuff. And so they left there exceedingly wealthy. And we're seeing here... um, what follows, as you see the Ark of the Covenants mentioned, and then some other things, are some detailed descriptions of what it contains. Well, what I want to do is I want to make some preliminary observations about this. First of all, I want you to note that this is something new. The tabernacle at this point in the scripture represents something new. Before this, God's people built altars at various times and places. We saw Abel had an altar he built. He gave sacrifice to the Lord. Noah built an altar after the flood to give sacrifice to the Lord. Abraham at time built altars in various places to give sacrifice. And uh, we saw Jacob uh, set up a stone and anointed it at, at a place called Bethel. But I want you to see that in the Bible, as you read the Old Testament, look for this. God occasionally intersects our time and space. Occasionally, he marks out a holiday like he did with the Passover uh, earlier in this book of Exodus. He says, you're going to take this month, you're going to make it your first month, and you're going to celebrate this as a holiday every single year. And so he gave them the Passover holiday and the Feast of Unleavened Bread that immediately followed that. And so he intersects the calendar. He makes specific places for us to examine, for us to look at. And he also occasionally has them set up monuments in particular places. And R.C. Sproul calls this intrusions into time and space. It's God exerting himself, making himself known, and invading time and space so that every time people walk by that monument that he told the Israelites to make, people would look at it and remark and remember what had happened. Or every time they came to that time of year when they celebrated the Day of Atonement or the Feast of the Passover, that they would remember what that was about and remember what God had done. Traditions are not all bad. Often, our traditions cause us to take a close look at something that God has done. And so what he does here is he gives a a tabernacle. And this is going to be basically like a portable temple. It's a great big tent consisting of two sections, a holy place and a most holy place, surrounded by a great courtyard that's divided off from everything else in the camp by this great wall of linen. And this later, of course, becomes the temple when they have a more permanent place to put it in the city of Jerusalem. And so what was was this for? Well, in those days, nomadic peoples, uh, there, there were still many nomadic peoples, and they would travel around. And when they would make a camp, at the very center of the camp would be the tent of the king. His tent would be at the center of things. 
He was their leader. He is showing his accessibility to the people. The people are showing his unity by surrounding him and in a way kind of protecting him. And here what God is doing is he's saying, I'm that king in the midst of my people. He is the center of all things. And it's interesting, while they were traveling in the wilderness, he put a visible presence there over the tabernacle, a great pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night so that no matter where a an Israelite was in the camp even if they had gone outside the camp for some reason they could see this pillar of fire this pillar of light and remember that God's presence was right there in the midst of them right in the middle of their camp this is important God was making himself their king indeed When the people of Israel ask for a king in the books of Samuel, they come to Samuel, they ask for a king. Samuel's very upset about this. And indeed, God was not happy about it. But he told Samuel, Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They have rejected me as being their king over them because they ask like a king, like all the other nations. Well, so this is something new that God has done with the Israelite people. He's given them this tangible place to do the sacrifices, to worship him, to have instruction, to have a meeting place, a place of fellowship, a place of worship and celebration. And I want you to notice that there are concentric circles of closeness to God, concentric circles of closeness to God. The camp around the tabernacle would look in such a way, and I'm going to take you to uh, an infographic that I have here from Logos Bible Software. And as we look at this, I want you to imagine this is the tabernacle area, and it's, of course, an artist's depiction of it. And what we see here in the tabernacle area is I want you to imagine this being at the center of a vast camp. We're talking about a few million people here camped around this. And there were concentric circles of importance. And here's how I want you to look at this. Way on the outskirts of the camp, uh, this is a camp of Israelites, all the Israelites and only the Israelites. Outside the camp, it was Gentile world. It was other people. God has made a distinction by making this particular people. He's saying, you are my people. Everyone else is outside the camp. Everyone else is a Gentile because he's doing something with these particular people. And the Israelites, therefore, would camp all around the tabernacle, but closer into the tabernacle. So you've got all the people camped around, but then closer in, close to the tabernacle, immediately around it would be the Levites. They were the guys that had the job of carrying the thing around. They would set it up. They would tear it down. They would take care of its parts. They would mend its parts if they broke. They would serve the priests who worked in the tabernacle. The priests was a special subset of Levite, a special family descended from Aaron that would do the sacrificing, that would go into the holy place. Now the Levites, the common Levites, couldn't go into the holy place. Only the priests could. And not only that, but the most holy place could only be visited by the high priest, the one and only high priest, and only once a year. So do you see these concentric value, this concentric circles of closeness to God? You had the people of Israel, which were closer than the rest of the world. You had the Levites who were called to special service. They were closer still. And then servicing right inside the holy place and the most holy place, the priests and the high priest in the most holy place once a year. And this is how God established things with them. 
This, in a way, parallels when Christ comes. There are certain words that stand out in the Gospels with concerning how people are associated with Jesus Christ. There were the multitudes, or the crowds, as some translations would put it, and the crowds consisted of people who were kind of starting to believe, maybe just there to check things out, Maybe they're on their way home from the grocery store and saw a commotion and thought they'd see what was going on. Maybe they were the opposition, keeping an eye on Jesus. In other words, a multitude was mixed, like the Gentiles, some interested in the things uh, that Jesus had, some not. But then around him, he had disciples. And we know that he appeared to as many as 500 disciples at one time. So there were hundreds of disciples, maybe even thousands, at the time that Jesus was ministering. But of those disciples, he chose 12 to be special. He called 12 to be what he called apostles. And so those were kind of the close ones around him. They were always with him. They stayed the night with him. Everyone else went home. All the other disciples, y'all going to go home? Uh, It's just me and the 12. We're going to go to camp now. And so he had this 12, but of the 12, there were three even tighter. Peter, James, and John. Jesus took them on a couple of occasions by themselves without the others. He took them on the Mount of Transfiguration, which is profoundly important because Jesus had a meeting with Moses and Elijah. And in this meeting, he was discussing his coming crucifixion with them. Well, the three, Peter, James, and John, they see all of this. They see Jesus' appearance transformed to show some of the glory that he had before coming here and being made flesh. And so they see this glory, they catch a glimpse of it, they see Moses and Elijah, and what does Peter say? He says, Lord, how about we make three tents, three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and we'll just stay right here. See, what Peter was saying is, and Peter didn't know what the future held, but Peter at that moment realized, I am content to stay right here with these fellows and nothing more. And indeed, the very presence of God and being in that presence of God, there's a contentment of, this is all I need. I've I've been in the presence of God. Things are very different now. And so Peter brings in the same kind of language in this great transfiguration, this great occurrence. So access to the Lord is limited. By grace, he brings people near, and he brings them near by appointment. He chose who the Levites were. He chose who the priests were going to be. He chose the 12 apostles. He says, I have chosen you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. And so he brings people near as he chooses in these concentric circles of nearness to God. There's also concentric circles of value. I want to take you to the infographic again, and I want to show you something that's very interesting about the tabernacle here. As we uh, zoom in here to the tabernacle, I hope this doesn't make you dizzy. As we zoom into the tabernacle, what we see here is the Bible describes in detail the materials used here. Outside the uh, perimeter, you have wooden supports holding up this white linen wall. Okay, as you come in, then you've got bronze tables that are used. You've got a bronze altar that is used to uh, 
burn the sacrifices on and this is where the priests would take and and burn the parts that were that were for sacrifice back here you have a bronze laver and this is a made of bronze and this is a great big bathtub and this is where the priests would clean themselves they had ritual cleansing that they would do before presenting each one of these things speaks something about what it means to be near to God near to Jesus Christ we'll get toward that in a minute. So these things out here are bronze, but as you come in here, you've got a structure here, this tabernacle, and the bases of it and the hooks that hold the linens together and things are made of silver. And then you've got fine gold, and then the framework inside is wood covered with gold. And then as you go into the holy place, you've got a lampstand, you've got a table of showbread, you've got an altar of incense. All these things are gold. And then you've got this veil made of very fine linen embroidered for beauty. Instead of just the plain white that's around the perimeter, this is fancier, as is the covering that we have on the over top of this thing. It's four layers. The inside layer is brilliantly colored and embroidered for beauty. Then you go into the the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Places it's called. In there you have the Ark of the Covenant made of gold covering acacia wood. The cover of it solid gold. We'll talk about all the things that are there. But do you see the transition? You have uh, basically a common linen out here. You have finer linens in here. You have bronze here. You have silver here. You have gold inside. You have gold in the most holy place. There is a there are concentric circles of value. And in essence, as you draw nearer to God, you draw nearer to this, these great and valuable things. The most valuable being in the Ark of the Covenant. And in the Ark of the Covenant were three things that were completely unique in the world. And they were the tablets of the, the law that Moses wrote. Then you had a jar of manna, which the Lord fed the people with when they were in the wilderness. And you also have the budded staff of Aaron showing the priesthood. And so those are unique, one-of-a-kind things, more valuable even than the gold of the container that they were in. And so we have these concentric circles of value, and they show you that drawing near to God is more special. Drawing near to God is of great value. And indeed, the things in his presence must be things that are clean. They must be things that are of value, that are without blemish. And this is what indeed he is showing Something else that this shows us is a path toward reconciliation. Because as you get closer, the things get more valuable, the uh, things get more important seeming as you go, and you are nearer to the presence of God, which is there in the most holy place. But this is also a path toward reconciliation. I want to show you something here. This uh, opening on this was oriented toward the east. And that is significant because if we remember way back in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, they were banished 
to the east. And at the east end of the garden was placed the guarding angel that had the uh, flame of fire moving back and forth. And so when they were banished from the garden, representative of their sin, they were banished toward the east. And look what happens here. As you come to worship the Lord at the tabernacle, you begin in the east and you move west. You come through the doors here and you come past the altar here and then through this here. And as you come into the holy place, you are going west, west, west. It is a very clear sign that God is moving people back into his presence, back to reconciliation with him. This shows us therefore a path of reconciliation. It also teaches us many lessons about the Messiah. That's about Jesus Christ. I'll refer you to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews goes through many of the things in the Old Testament and shows how they prefigured Jesus Christ. That is, they were kind of like him in a way, but they were pointing to him. And so he is far greater than those things. We see it in people who prefigure him like Moses. And as we saw Joseph and David, we see it in the things that prefigure what he's going to do as in the Exodus, the Passover lamb. We've looked at all these things and indeed how many of the laws even point to him. And so this is about Jesus Christ. When we think about what's in that tabernacle, here's what we have. We have an altar, and that means that's about Jesus Christ. Let me zoom out here and get back to the altar here and show you what I mean. The altar is all about sacrifice, and this is showing us that the way to God is blocked, that it must come through sacrifice. And indeed, Jesus was the final sacrifice. Then you get here to the laver and the laver was about ritual washing. In other words, the Lord told them, I don't want the priests coming near me unless they're clean. And in the Bible, it's very clear that the idea of having sin is accompanies the idea of being physically dirty. You know, that he says, I want them physically clean because only the clean can come near me. And so this shows the purification required to draw near. We know Jesus was tempted in every way like we are, but he was without sin. He was completely pure. That qualified him as a perfect high priest. That qualified him as the perfect sacrifice. So now we come to the holy place and the holy place, it has the lampstand and it shows that the light of God uh, is the only light in this place. It was the only light. There weren't other lights. There were no overhead fluorescent lights. This was simply a lampstand with seven lamps on it that gave light to the entire room. It was fueled by oil. And in the Bible, oil is generally representative of the Holy Spirit who gives light to meet with God. And so this is showing us also more about Jesus Christ, who, because of what he did, was able to send the Holy Spirit upon us for illumination. And we rely upon that to see the truth of God. Over here was the table of showbread. And on this were 12 loaves of bread were to be there all the time. And it was to show that they, that the 12 tribes of Israel were always in the presence of God. He was always thinking about them. They were always able to have audience with him. They were right there in his presence. 
And so the table of showbread talks about that. He sees all they do and he is concerned with all that they do. And then inside here you have the altar of incense and twice a day ashes from the sacrifices from the great altar outside were brought in here and combined with incense and placed on the altar of incense. And that would be uh, done twice a day. And that's when the high priest would come in and also tend to the lamp. So in here you have the ark. And it's interesting here the word used for this. is just a word for box, which is oddly enough the word that was used, yes, for the boat that Noah was in. We know that the boat uh, in the time of the flood represents Jesus, that only in him can we get through the wrath of God. And indeed, this also represents Messiah. Some point out that this is gold covered with wood, which is like speaking of Jesus' deity represented by the gold, but also his humanity represented by the wood, something perishable. And it's carrying what? It's carrying the law, the tablets of the law that Jesus said that he came to fulfill. It's also carrying the budded staff of Aaron. And the book of Hebrews tells us Jesus was the final and great high priest. And it's also carrying the bread that the Lord fed them from heaven. And in John chapter 8, Jesus makes a big deal of the fact that he says, I'm the bread from heaven. And so all these things point to him. But I want to bring you back to the most important on top of this Ark of the Covenant is what's called the mercy seat. So on top of this Ark of the Covenant, this gold structure with these things in it, is what's called the mercy seat. There are two great cherubim, two great angels uh, of solid gold on top of this thing with their wings spread over the, the middle. And they, they were the wings were to meet in the middle. And then under those wings, between those cherubim, was what was called the mercy seat. And the mercy seat is where once a year, the high priest would come in to this holy of holies. He would come in here and sprinkle blood from the annual offering on the Day of Atonement for the sins of the people. Now, that word for mercy seat is translated in the New Testament as propitiation. You can see in the notes where I've given some cross-references to find the word propitiation in the New Testament. And what that's talking about is that's talking about this mercy seat. In other words, what Jesus did for us is he made atonement for sins. Now, I also want to point out that there was a veil separating the holy place and the most holy place, and that veil was torn in two at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, showing indeed that he had torn down all barriers to access to God for all people, because now it was going to be accessible to everybody, not just the high priest on the, on the, the one day of the year, but that God was going to be accessible to be in his very presence for all who believe. So every element is significant in its lessons. And indeed, as you can see, there could be an entire sermon series on just the tabernacle. And I encourage you to find some. There are many people who've done great sermon series on this subject, and they are very helpful. There are books written about the issue on how all these things speak of Jesus Christ. 
So what does this mean to us? I mean, we can see plainly that this speaks of Jesus Christ, but is this just a curiosity for us? Or does this have some real practical lessons that can help me out today? Well, of course, you know the answer. There's practical application here. The first bit of practical application I want to give you is to show you that God is over and over again in the scriptures showing that there is available reconciliation and that he is moving people toward reconciliation. As someone came to worship, they came into the camp, they came through the camp and closer to the tabernacle and through the outer veil and by where the sacrifice was being made in the labor. If they were a priest, they could go into the holy place and then eventually the most holy place, always drawing nearer to God. This is how God designed the tabernacle. But notice that Israel is going through a process in the narrative that we're studying. We're at the part in the narrative where Israel has been brought out of Egypt. They were brought out of bondage. They were redeemed by the blood of a lamb on the day of Passover. And now they find themselves in the wilderness learning from God himself. They still don't have a permanent home. They're doing what's called sojourning. They're wandering around. In other words, they're dwelling in places that aren't their permanent home, but they all the time are with God. Eventually, they get into the promised land, the land that God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're going to come into that, and they're going to have a more permanent dwelling place. And in fact, when that dwelling place has been permanent for some uh, centuries, he is going to have them build a temple. And so it's a fascinating progression of bondage, redemption, sojourning, and settlement. Do you see how that's parallel to the life of a believer in Jesus Christ? The Bible tells us that every single one of us is in complete bondage to sin, that we are its slave, that we are slaves to sin. A lot of people avoid faith in Jesus Christ because they're like, well, if I start going to church, I have to give up this, I have to give up that. They don't understand. They're, they're already in bondage. They're afraid of having rules put on them, but they're already under the rule of sin. They're under its rule and its rule is harsh. And so we are in bondage to sin, but we can be redeemed by the blood of the lamb, by having faith. Remember why people would put blood on their doorposts for the Passover to make sure that their family was safe. They would do it because they believed God. And that's what faith is, is belief. So bondage and redemption is available in Jesus Christ. But once we are redeemed by Jesus Christ, we're still here. And I've I've heard preachers say, you know, maybe the best thing we could do for people is, you know, once they come to faith in Jesus Christ and, and once they get baptized, then we could just like knock them over the head and do them a favor and send them, send them to heaven because it doesn't get any easier after that. We're still here, but now we're under attack, under spiritual attack because we are the people of God. And so, you know, we are sojourners in this land. The New Testament uses the word sojourner to describe believers in Jesus Christ as we live here. This is no longer our home. Our home is in heaven. We're told in Ephesians that we are already citizens of heaven, that we are seated in the heavenly places. And yet here we are traveling in this land as sojourners. Our king is in heaven. 
And we're given the Holy Spirit to be able to sojourn. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But the Lord is returning and the Lord will be giving us a more permanent home in a new heaven and a new earth. And the Lord will be there. His, his presence will be there in the new Jerusalem. And so we will always be in his presence in a permanent and eternal home with him. And so our travels are like the travels of the people of Israel. We were in bondage. We've been redeemed by Jesus Christ. We are sojourning in this land and one day we will settle in the ultimate fulfillment of the promised land, the new heaven and new earth. It's exciting. The book of Hebrews even tells us that's what Abraham was looking for. When you read about Abraham in chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews, he was looking forward to a city not built by human hands. And indeed, we will one day be there with him and in fulfillment of all those promises. So we also um, look at this as a dwelling place for God. The New Testament uh, shows us that the, the people of God are a dwelling place for God. And here what God has done is he's put right in the midst of the camp. As you can see in the picture there, the people living around it, the tents in the background, the people ministering around this place, that this was a dwelling place for God right in the midst of the camp. And the New Testament refers to this as well. He refers, uh, the New Testament refers to the people of God as a dwelling place. Listen to what it says in the book of Ephesians as it likens the people of God, the church universal, all believers around the world, to a building. He says that we are members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. See, when Jesus left, he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He says, if I go, I will send you another comforter. And he was speaking of the Holy Spirit. Go look in John chapters 14 through 16. He teaches that the Holy Spirit was going to be sent and he refers to this Holy Spirit as another comforter. Well, another one, who was the first one? Well, the first one was Jesus. And he says, I'm going to send another. And the Greeks had two words for another. They had one word that meant another of a different kind and a word that meant another of the same kind. Well, Jesus said, I'll give you another of the same kind of comforter. Like me, it's the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus was telling us that the Holy Spirit is that presence of God with us, that we didn't miss out because we weren't born during Jesus' ministry. We didn't miss a thing because he gives the Holy Spirit, which actually indwells us. And as such, we are being built into the new temple. So we don't need a temple. We don't even need a church building. There are thousands upon thousands of churches meeting around the world, local congregations that don't meet in a building because it's illegal, but they meet in their living rooms. They meet wherever they meet. They meet out in the fields. They, they hide out in clearings in the woods. And uh, for, for centuries, this caused people to say, those Christians are a little weird. They wander off into the woods every Sunday. Well, they were meeting together to worship because they couldn't do it safely anywhere else. 
We indeed have the Holy Spirit of God with us. We are sojourners and we have the most portable presence of God ever thinkable. He is in us as the Holy Spirit. Well, it's also the church local. Uh, Paul writes a letter, 1 Corinthians, to a church having a lot of problems. And this was a local congregation in Corinth. And he's not writing these things in here generally. He's writing them to the Corinthians. And we have the letter because there are many things that always apply to us as well. But look what he says here. He says, do you not know that you, and the plural there is you, that's why it's got the uh, footnote there. Do you not know that you all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? In other words, the local body of believers is also a temple of God. That we don't need all the church universal. We have a complete temple right here as we gather together uh, as people to worship together. And this is a temple for the Holy Spirit. Do you remember Jesus gave a promise? He said, where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. And so Jesus was putting a special value, a special promise on people gathering in his name. In other words, you know, we all have the Holy Spirit of God. And when I'm off by myself somewhere at work or whatever else I'm doing, I have the Holy Spirit in me. And in a way, I'm a temple of God. But there's something different when I'm gathered with other believers. And Jesus said, there I am in the midst of you. And in other words, between us among us like a person and so that is indeed what Paul's saying here he's like you're God's temple God's spirit dwells in you and then finally individually as I alluded to here uh, later in the same letter Paul talks about this do you not know that your body and he's talking about the physical body because he's talking about don't be committing sins in your body because you're carrying around the Holy Spirit he says do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And so the teaching is that indeed we are a dwelling place for God. How powerful and important is that? Consider that. You're a believer in Jesus Christ. He is dwelling in you right now. You're a believer in Jesus Christ. When you gather with another, he is dwelling among you specially. And you have fellowship with all believers in the whole world because indeed we are all together, this great dwelling place for God. This also teaches of the supremacy of Christ. And I won't spend a lot of time on this because it should be obvious. When you take a look at the picture that we have here, this was supposed to be in the middle of their camp. In other words, the Lord said, I want to be at the center. I want you know, what's going on here and your connection to God and your worship of God to be the singular most important thing in your life. And the question is, if we had Google or Amazon uh, Analytics, AWS, analyze our lives and what we spend our time doing to arrange our homes in the most practical way, what would be at the center of it? Would it be the television? seems to have the prominent position in most of our living rooms. Would it be the kitchen? Because <laughs> we're eating all the time. <laughs> it might be the kitchen because we have a lot of fellowship with people. What would be at the center? What God wanted the Israelites to have at the center of their camp was that tabernacle. And he wants no different from people today. 
He wants to be at the center of our lives, at the center of what we do. He deserves that place and he has offered it. He deserves it by merely offering it because we don't deserve it. And so he wants to be at the center of everything. He wants to be the centrality of worship in our lives. Let me take you to one more scripture that I want to point out to you, and it's this. Our time here is temporary. Listen to how Peter was acutely aware of this. Peter was being persecuted. Peter was going to be killed for Christ, and Peter knew it. Jesus told him on the seas of Galilee before Jesus ascended to heaven. He told Peter that, you know, indicated through a little, uh, you can read it there in John 20, uh, and, and he takes his hand and he holds them together and he goes, one day you'll, you'll be led where you don't want to go. And he was speaking of his death. And look what Peter says in the second letter that he writes here, a general letter he wrote to people dispersed, believers all around the world. He says, I think it is right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able to at any time to recall these things. The word he used for body here is related to the same word Jesus uh, was described as dwelling among us, the word for tent. Peter considered his body a tent. And Paul uses this word in the same way that indeed what we have here in this human body is merely a tent this body will perish and we will take this off one day and then we'll get a new permanent residence in a resurrection body. And so indeed this is temporary. Life here is temporary. And if it's not clear enough, look around at the world and look how indeed life is temporary. Look at how the world has in fear of death has utterly ruined its economy and which is ruining the lives of many people in many other ways and they're saying well at any cost we're going to save every human life we can why do they fear death because it's inevitable because it comes and because it's an intrusion upon God's design of things. It only came with sin. He never made us to die, which is probably why we never get used to the idea. Our time here is temporary, and let's do like Peter. Let's make the very best of it. Let's, let's wear this tent out for the Lord and do all that we can, for the things of this world are fading away, but there's something permanent in us, an eternal soul, that will exist permanently. And it will exist in one of two places in permanent fellowship with the Lord in a new heaven and new earth or in permanent suffering in a place called hell. We want to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, repent of our sins, turn from our way of doing things and turn to him. Let him be in the midst of your camp let him be the center of your life. It is a position that he deserves. Jesus Christ, the great high priest, the final sacrifice for sins, Emmanuel, which means God with us.
as you celebrate the Christmas season, I want you to remember this lesson and remember that tabernacle was there and that then one day Jesus came and tabernacled among us and he is the place where we meet with God. Let's pray. Father God, we are stunned at your mercy and at your grace that you would provide a way for us after we have sinned to be able to come together with you. And Lord, I pray that you'll just minister mightily through the words uh, that, that have been examined here in your scripture today. And I pray that you'll give many the faith to repent and to trust in you for salvation. I pray that each and every one of us, Lord, that believe on the Lord Jesus Christ will be challenged by this to put him at the center of our camp, at the the center of our lives, that we would revolve all things around him, that we would have an ever-present witness to his presence in our lives. Lord, strengthen us by your spirit, encourage us by this word, and make yourself known and glorified in all the earth, that indeed one day, Lord, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To you, all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I invite you, if you have any questions about these things, I invite you to uh, make them known to us. You can contact us here at uh, White Throne Baptist at gmail.com. We will receive those emails personally. We will respond personally. And it will be a, a great encouragement to us to hear from you, whether you have a question or a comment or just an encouragement or a, a thumbs up, whatever you want to send would be great. And you can visit our website at whitesrun.org where you can find the balance of this series uh, that will greatly help your understanding of reading the scriptures. And you also find many other sermon series there that are put there for your edification along with notes pages and uh, other encouragements to help you grow in your faith. Well, may God richly bless you and may you really think about Emmanuel, God with us at the center of our camp.